0: Best Book Bids podcast brings you electric Bill Williams on a mission to shock us out of our static daily routines, having spent 30 years delivering his electrified methodologies to workplaces. Bill is the principal and president of the boutique leadership development firm, the B4 Group Inc., and he's the host and brand ambassador for the art of leadership and the art of leadership for women. He's the author of Electric Life, 12 Micro Steps to Pay Attention, be brilliant and go deep. Bill, thanks for being on the show.
1: Oh, so thrilled to be here, Michael. How are um, you? I'm
0: excellent. Thank you. Uh tell me, how did you get the name Electric Bill?
1: <laughs> Actually, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting experience that's happened. I, w- I was born the son of an electrician, and I thought I would never be an electrician in any way, shape or form. Whenever dad, when I'd ask dad questions about electricity, he'd like, go ask your mother, <laughs> go away. But here I am now, and during a rebranding process that I've gone through from the B4 group to Electric Bill, that's what we came with. I was actually born, Michael, in this little town in northeastern British Columbia, northwestern British Columbia Wow, get my provinces straight, northwestern Ontario, Canada. And it was uh, previously two different little towns, a, f- a little port, Port Arthur, and a little fort, Fort William. And my mother, Alice Margaret Foster Williams, she held her labor to drive through Port Arthur so that her son, William Grant Williams, could be born in Fort William, Ontario. Now, those two towns have amalgamated. And guess what the name of that town is now? It's actually a city is Thunder Bay. And thunder's a sound you hear after you experience lightning and so electric bill really is totally aligned with all of those things that's how the name came about yeah
0: that's awesome that's (laughs) awesome great story uh tell me a little bit about the book when did it come out and uh what what's the book
1: about well, I, I guess it sort of feels a little bit like it's all about me, Michael, which is so strange because being the host and brand ambassador and MC, I'm often interviewing and now being interviewed is really a, a turn of the tables. Uh and so the book itself is, you know, it's just been a work that I've had in place for a long, long time. But it came out on April fifth, two thousand twenty two, which happened to be my fifty-ninth birthday, which means it's my sixtieth tour around the sun. So I don't think the planets could have aligned any better. And having
0: that book come on. Yeah, awesome, awesome. We're going to deep dive into the book and you talk about sort of 12 tiny steps forward um, to people changing their energy. But one of the great things that I, I got from the book, um, talked a little bit about sort of how you came up with this philosophy about, you know, infusing your life with uh, energy and what you call energy to live. How did it all come about and what's the background to it?
1: Well, you know, Michael, what's interesting about this is that our own normals just are normal. Like that's just your every day is your every day. My every day is my every day. And I didn't really think that I was that electric, if you will, or that much of an energizer. But what I've heard from people time and time again, whether I'm speaking, whenever I speak, they say, you really need to write a book. Uh, But aside from writing the book, what they always talk about is just my energy. And I'm like, this is normal for me. What is different about this? So I started to pay attention a little bit more, not just to my own self-awareness, my own emotional intelligence, but observing other people. And so one of the things that I challenge people to do all the time is to give the energy that you wanna receive back and just see the difference that that makes for you. You know, all too often people tell me that they just had one bad customer service experience after another bad customer service experience. And I'm like, why is that happening to you? Because that never happens to me. Uh, It's funny. If I'm traveling with friends, I just came back from an amazing trip down to Mexico with a bunch of friends. And they're always like, you go check us in. You you check us into the hotel. I'm like, why do I have to check us in? It's like, you always get us upgrades. You get us free coupons. I'm like, I'm not manipulating things. I'm just engaging with human beings. Uh, You may have heard the um, South African greeting, Salbona. And if you haven't, it's simply me. It's a greeting in South African Zulu. That means I see you, therefore you exist. And so whenever I approach people, I always do it from that perspective of, I see you and I want to learn more about you. That makes that connection stronger and deeper so that I make sure that I get the energy that I'm looking for from other individuals.
0: Yeah, well said. And that's one of the things in your book you talk about as well. Uh, What you just spoke about is acknowledging the other people as well and bringing energy into that environment. Uh, You kick off in the book, uh, part one, you say pay attention. So step one is uh, finding your hurricane, the art of bringing your whole self to work. You talk about a great little story about bumblebees and how bumblebees, how they're not supposed to fly given their, their structure, but no one told them that they couldn't fly, but they do. And how using their wings, they create little tiny hurricanes can you expand on that for us with the story of the bumblebee
1: i mean absolutely Re- read the book and you'll get the scientific so so the book is a lot of anecdotes and stories but it is backed up by research and data so you can find the data in the book it's called dynamic stall and, and basically bumblebees find their own way to lift themselves up you're absolutely right based on you know some cocktail um, napkin calculations by andre saint lagu a famous french scientist a bumblebee never should be able to fly, but as you said, no one told them. And so they don't actually flap their wings, they, they sort of spin their wings or turn their wings, which, which creates that dynamic stall. Basically in the end though, they're lifting themselves up. And so for me, what I wanna know from you, from anybody I come in contact with is, what gives you energy? What, what picks you up? Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it really doesn't matter, but what generates energy for you? What really lifts you up? And once you're lifted, then you can navigate and go wherever you wanna go. So take a look and really calculate and figure out what are the things that bring energy into your life? What are the things that also drain energy out of your life And how can you balance those two things? So uh, just a quick example for me, what gives me energy is movement. So I wear a Fitbit and at the top of the hour, so 10 minutes to the top of the hour, if I haven't moved, it gives me a little vibration. I know it's time to get up and move. Now, if I really wanna build up energy, I'll put on music as well. So I'm listening to music and I'm moving. Some people call that dancing. And so I know that gives me energy. So if I'm ever feeling a little bit depleted, pump on a song, get a little bit of movement, 'm ready to
0: go yeah definitely uh, emotion comes from motion. and uh, if, you're feel it, if you're not feeling if you 're not feeling the best, then yeah change your body state and change your state back to Tony Robbins, one of the things you talk about in the book which which is great in the corporate world, a company can only pay for your body to show up, but your job is to show up and be ready to work on time and accomplish the task in fact, everything else is a volunteer role, which is your emotional commitment, your passion, and your innovative ideas as well. Can you talk about that and how bringing energy to work they can yeah they can pay for your body but you really got to come there with with your energy uh, can you expand on that a little bit
1: for sure for sure so Yes, they, they have paid. And in this day and age, especially with people working from anywhere, you know, we're, we're, you're likely logging into some kind of a, a VPN or some kind of a computer system, even if it's just your Outlook system itself. Your company knows when you showed up. They know when you're on a break and they know when you've left. So, yeah, they're definitely paying attention to the money they're paying for the body to show up. But I often ask people, and I mean, this is a little cheeky, if you don't mind, you know, do you work with stupid people? And often the audience goes, yeah, I got a couple of people on my team I'm questioning their intelligence. Well, it's not that they're not smart. It's just maybe they're not volunteering their ideas at work. So it's up to us to share our ideas. Michael, you know, you do an amazing job with Best Book Bites, you know, these podcasts and, and, and the uh, reviews of the books. But, you know, the, the question for me is how honest are people? And what I mean by that is that honesty in my experience is really a combination of two things. One part of honesty is telling the truth. And I'm pretty certain that you and your listeners, you know, they don't lie. But the other part of honesty is being open. Now, you know, again, you do a great job. You probably thought long and hard about how you do your job and what you could do to get better at your job. But we are limited by our own thinking. You know, I need other people's ideas. I've thought long and hard about how I do what I do. And so I need people to challenge me with a new idea. And so are they volunteering those ideas at work? Now, too often in the work environment, we do not have psychological safety. And what that means is that people don't feel comfortable to share an idea. You know, is this stupid? Is this a dumb idea? Has this been thought of before? Did they try this previously? And so I really encourage people to be honest with their organization. So tell the truth, but also be open with their ideas. You know, how often have people been at work in the last week or even in the last month, and they've been in a meeting and no judgment here from me, Michael, but for whatever reason, they choose to not share their idea. They're afraid they're going to look like they don't have an original thought. They're afraid they're going to look like they're not contributing. Well, in actual fact, when they aren't open with their ideas, that is the assumption we make. You know, why is um, Zahava so quiet? Why, why doesn't Randeep share his idea? Um, so we just presume they don't have any ideas. So, so really be open and honest with your ideas. Speak the truth and share your ideas at work. Now, the other thing that's really important is to be passionate about what you do. So so those ideas are the brain showing up. That's what I'm talking about there. But when I'm talking about the heart or your passion, you know, do you really see that showing up at work? How would I know if you're passionate about what you're doing? And, and I'll always remember here in Toronto, Canada, I live in a neighborhood called the Stockyards. And right across the street from my home is the LCBO. It's the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. So that's where we go to buy our wine and our liquor and our beer. And we also have Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. And one year, I, uh, they sell their cookies so they can raise money so they can go to summer camp. One year, I walked up to the LCBO and there were uh, four girl guides there and one mother watching over them. And each of the girls had a box of cookies in their hands. And I said, to, uh, they said, hey, mister, do you want to buy a box of cookies? I'm like, sure. How much if I bought all the cookies you're holding right now? And they did the math. It was five bucks a box. So it was like five, 10, 50, $20. And I'm like, okay. And I pulled out $20 and I handed it to the girl guys. You should have seen their eyes, Michael. They were just like on fire. These girls were charged and they were so excited. They sold $20 worth of cookies. And I said, yeah, but how much would you have made if you were each holding two boxes of cookies? You saw a little bit of disappointment on their faces as they did the math. They could have made $40, they only made $20. So I went into the liquor store and I came back outside again after making my purchase. And guess what I discovered with those Girl Guides? Three of them were each holding two boxes of cookies, but the girl that actually approached me and sold the cookies, she was holding three boxes of cookies in her hand. So, you know, you can see the passionate in their faces. You can see the passion in what they're doing. They love what they do. And if you're in any kind of a sales capacity, when you love your product, it's almost impossible to get somebody to not buy your product. You are a testimony of that. You embody your product and your service. So for me, it, it, it can't just be the body that shows up. But even when the body shows up, Michael, I challenge people, are you getting the sleep you need? Are you getting the rest that you need? Are you getting the hydration that you need as well? So take care of the body. It's a gift to you. But then volunteer your mind, your ideas, your insights, your thoughts, and also demonstrate that passion for the product or service that you're working
0: yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, you can show up with your body, but you need to actually show up with your mind and spirit, which encompasses your, your passion as well. So yeah, thank you for sharing uh, that story as well. Uh, in the book, you talk about a couple of little tips. So you talk about keep a list of all your accomplishments, a done list. What do you mean by that? And why should we do this?
1: Oh. Well, Michael, let let me tell you that story as well, if I can, you know, um, I've worked in the corporate world for, you know, a long, long time. I've been in business for many, many decades now, and I've always had a strategy to make sure that I had the most amazing people. I want to be able to attract and retain the best and the brightest. So one year within our organization, we're doing an employee engagement survey. And one of the questions that was on that employee engagement survey was in the last week, have you been recognized for good performance? I thought, that's a really interesting question. You know, recognition to me is really important. Uh, Recognition, I think, is what drives behavior even more so than, you know, thank yous and appreciations and coffee mugs and water bottles with a company logo on it. So I decided that I would go through what I called my Monday morning meeting process. Now, the first Monday of every month was my team's meeting with me. So I had no agenda. I would just show up to all of my direct reports and I would be a team member and I would sit there and just contribute and participate to the meeting. The second Monday of every month was their one-on-one with me. Again, I had no agenda, Michael. I would just show up and whatever they wanted to talk about for 45 minutes, I was there for them. The third Monday of every month was my team meeting with them. And I had a situation report I had to put in front of my manager. So so I had a very specific list of questions and we got that done. Now, the fourth Monday of every month was my one-on-one with them. And one of the questions I would ask them is, in the last month since we met, what accomplishment are you most proud of? And my team looked at me and they were just blank eyes. Like they they had nothing, Michael. And I'm like, okay, I'll move on to my next question. A month went by and I asked them again, hey, what accomplishment are you most proud of in the last month? I'm like, ugh, that question again? Bill, you ask a lot of crazy questions. This is one of your craziest ones. I got nothing. And so I said, let me be abundantly clear with you. I'm going to ask that question again next month. (laughs) And I encourage you to come to our meeting prepared. So that Monday, I asked that same question again, what accomplishment are you most proud of? And they would tell me, I said, you know what, that's absolutely amazing. Let me be clear with you about one of my expectations. I expect you to have your resume, your CV on the desktop of your work computer. Now, I don't know, Michael, when the last time was that you actually completed a resume. Once upon a time, it was just position description after position description after position description. In this role, I was responsible for blah, 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 blah. blah. That's not what resumes look like anymore. Now a resume is a very short one-liner about the position description and then a list of all of the accomplishments that you had in that role. And so here's the interesting strategy that I believe that I had, Michael. I knew that every one of my direct reports had the resume on the desktop of their computer. I knew that they had a list of accomplishments on it because the next month I asked them what accomplishment are most proud of? They'd tell me, I'd say, that's cool. You should put that on your resume. And then the third month that I asked them what accomplishment are you most proud of? They'd tell me again, and I'd go, that's amazing. You should put that on your resume. And guess what I'd hear back from them, Michael? I already did. You see, I taught my people how to treat me I conditioned them almost to the behaviors that I expected from them, and they did that. Now, Michael, here's the strategy part of it though. What do people use resumes for? What do people use CVs for? Applying for a job, getting a new job. Now, how often? Do your listeners see a job posting go up somewhere inside their company or outside of their company? And they go, oh my gosh, like that is perfectly, that's designed for me. They might as well put my name on that posting because that's the job for me. What do they say to themselves at night as they're going home, commuting home? Tonight, I'm gonna update my resume. And the next night, what do they say to themselves as they're driving home again? Tonight, I'm gonna update my resume. Now, you know, 10 days later, the posting's about to come down and what do they say? Oh, well. I guess I'm stuck here. So what did I believe about every one of my direct reports? I believe their resume was ready. If they saw a job posting they wanted to go after, they maybe needed to remove some of their accomplishments because they had so many that they had listed there. But what I knew from my team was it would be instant that they could apply for another job anywhere else. So my natural presumption from that, if they were there working with me, it was because they chose to be, not because they had to be. So that's where I really got to see that employee engagement from my team. It's because I knew that they were achieving things, they were accomplishing things, they were making a difference, they showed up, they made a difference. They were there because they wanted to be, not because they were...
0: Yeah, it's a great strategy and you're know you putting the sort of horse before the cart and putting the people before everything else as well and I think it's a great little strategy of having your resume up to date and especially knowing that they can leave anytime or go to another job and you're, you're helping them with the life skills as well. So yeah, great, great strategy. Moving on, step number two in the book, you talk about choosing your balloon and the art of making your own luck as well. You talk about a great Zen story which a lot of people have heard. If you want to expand on that story, but basically it's about bad luck, good luck, who knows. Uh, what is this Zen story with the Chinese farmer and the horse that plows his fields and one day the horse runs away to the hills? What happens after that?
1: Well, so yeah, it's an, it's an interesting thing. So there is, there is this farmer and he has a son and they only have one horse. And so, you know, one day the horse runs away and all the villagers say to him, oh, what bad luck. You know, your horse ran away. You won't be able to plow your fields and he says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? And so, uh, you know, the next day, the horse comes back, but it comes back with a few wild horses as well. And and everybody in the village says, oh my gosh, what good luck. Your horse came back and it brought extra horses with it. And he says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Now, he only has the one son and the son goes to, you know, sort of break the horse, if you will, and, and learn to domesticate the horse so that it can plow the fields. Now, the horse bucks the sun off and the sun breaks a limb and all the villagers go, oh, what bad luck. Your son broke a limb. And the farmer again says, good luck, bad luck. Who knows? The next day, the army comes through the village. There's a war that's about to begin and all of the men of the village are taken away. But his son, because he had a broken limb, didn't qualify, could not fight in the war. And the villagers again say, good luck to the farmer. He says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? So really, it's all about how you see it. And so, Michael, I love this because um, my housekeeper is a gentleman from Australia. And one day he called me and he said, Bill, I'm sorry, I don't think I can make it over today. I dropped a weight on my foot at the gym and I don't think I can make it to your house. I feel really bad about that. And I said to him, Chris, I said, good luck, bad luck, who knows? He says, what are you talking about? I said, you dropped a weight on your foot and it stopped you from riding your bicycle over to my house. We have no idea how the world would have turned if you hadn't have done that. I don't know if there might have been, and I hate to put this out there into the universe, a bus that had your name on it. Maybe you would have been hit by a bus, but by the fact that you dropped a weight on your foot, it wasn't bad luck. That might've been good luck because now you're comfortably and safely laying on your sofa at home and you're not available to be hurt or injured in any other way. So I think it's important for us to really look at how do we perceive the world? What are we looking at? And was it really bad luck? Or maybe is it actually good luck? We don't
0: know. Yeah, and and that sort of ties into the story you talk about with how our minds are, are neuroplastic and, you know, once stretched to a new idea, they'll never return to their original shape. And in a similar way, we can make an impact on our own lives by choosing how we think. What matters to us and what, will, what we define um, sorry, and what will define and represent who we are in this world as well. You know, what happened before today really doesn't measure into anything unless uh, we wanted to as well. So talk about creating our own life and in sort of interpreting life, how we wish to interpret it instead of it interpreting us.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it goes back to that balloon as well. Right. And so the mind once stretched by an idea will never return to its original shape. That That's the whole concept of shape your own balloon is that, you know, if you ever go to it, well, you've got your children. And so you probably had birthday parties for them. Maybe a part of that is you had beautiful, you know, pristine brand new balloons that were there. And, and your partner may have said, hey, help me decorate. And so you grab one of those balloons and you look at it and it's perfect, pristine shape and you stretch it and pull it and fill your lungs with air and blow into that balloon as hard as you can and finally it pops open and you keep filling it more and more. And so you've got that nice big balloon and you go to try to tie a knot in it and it slips out of your hand and it flutters around the room and lands on the ground. It's in a new shape. It will never go back to its original shape again. So I really challenge people to really think about the thoughts that they have and how those shape their mind, how those shape their perception of other people. You know, as I shared with you, I was born William Grant Williams in Fort William, Ontario. And, you know, clearly my parents have a very sarcastic sense of wit. Um, You know, my mother drove through Port Arthur in order to get to Fort William. So she held her labor that, you know, they were very clear they wanted William Grant Williams born in Fort William, Ontario, Canada. And so my dad's sense of humor, I loved it. It was very quick wit, but it was also very sarcastic wit. And it would never be my intention to offend anyone. Now, you know, the globe has been impacted by, you know, the events of the last few years, including the murder or execution of George Floyd. And so in Canada, we refer to it as BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color. And... You know, we really were raised in a a racist society here. We were raised in a misogynistic society. All of my career, I've been in female dominated industries, uh, retail banking, travel and tourism, you know, all these industries. But yet they all had male leaders. And so really think about what shapes your thoughts, you know, all of your experiences and so on. So, again, it would never be my intention to offend anyone with my humor. But what's more important, my intention or their perception. And if their perception is that they're offended, then I need to change my behavior to ensure that it aligns with, you know, everybody talks about being an authentic leader, but, but what does that mean? It means your walk and your talk are one and the same and that we're constantly learning, we're constantly growing. And so how do we shape our thoughts? And, and how do we not only have an open mind, Michael, but, but how do we have an empty mind? Because when you have an open mind, That means that, you know, you have room to add more, but it also means that there is prejudice that's there before as well. All those life experiences before are are prejudging what's coming after. So I invite people to to function with a bit of an empty mind so that when they hear a new idea, rather than judging it, they can be open to just receiving. it. One of my favorite quotes is just because you're right doesn't mean I'm wrong and even if i'm right it doesn't mean you're wrong it doesn't have to be about right or wrong it just has to be about what's in the highest
0: yeah and you talk about one of your superpowers is curiosity and i think that ties back to being open as well can you talk about curiosity
1: Yeah, well, for me, curiosity is bless you or to your health, whatever is appropriate to say in this day and age. Uh, A sneeze is a good thing. It it, it loosens the mind. Um, So powering curiosity for me is, is, again, it just goes back to judgment, Michael. Rather than judging what somebody has said, ask them, what made you say that? What made you think that I needed to hear that at this moment right now? And, and just really dialing up your curiosity, put the judgment down and seek to find more information, because we're probably jumping to a conclusion that, that isn't potentially even accurate or correct at all. And it is based on our prejudice, uh, you know, our previous life experiences. And so rather than making a judgment, dial up your curiosity. Ask some questions. Dig a little bit deeper. Turn a few pages more into the book and see what you can read and understand and learn from it. But I really challenge people: less judgment, more curiosity.
0: Yep. Just segue into one of the great notes I got from the book. You talk about fine is not a feeling. Can you talk about the art of figuring out uh, the art of figuring out what you feel?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Michael, thanks for taking me back to a time in my life. So (laughs) I married my high school sweetheart, and she is an incredible woman, just an absolutely phenomenal woman. And we were really mature. Uh, I was just turned 20 and uh, because my marriage day was May 21st, and um, she was 19. And we said, you know, we're really young. But at that point, back in the 80s, it was still called living in sin, Michael. Um, (laughs) If you moved in with your intimate other before you got married, that was in my family called living in sin. And so that was not allowed. And so we decided we would get married. But we said, you know what, Um, seven years from now, 10 years from now, we could be completely different people. Do we still want to do this? And so we said, yes, we did. Sure enough, seven years later, the marriage um, just naturally expired and I discovered that I was actually uh, not heterosexual, I was homosexual, I was gay. And um, as a part of that, I went to uh, took advantage of the employee assistance program at the employer that I had at that moment in time. And she asked me, you know, Bill, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. And she said, "Um, Bill, uh, fine is not a feeling. Uh, How are you? Happy, sad, glad, mad, or angry? And I'm like, "Um, I'm fine. And Michael, what I realized at that point in time was that I was numb. You know, I was dealing with so much, the ending of the relationship, moving on, uh, you know, learning about my own sexuality and having to accept that. Back in the early 80s, the HIV AIDS epidemic was just breaking through. We've just come through COVID, Um, you know, not the same, but not too dissimilar either an epidemic, a, a pandemic. And so there was a lot that I was dealing with. So that, that emotional support that I needed from a psychotherapist really made a big difference for me. And that's when I learned that fine is not a feeling and that it's important that we we really dig a little bit deeper. Uh, If you've done uh, anything around uh, Susan B. David, she wrote emotional agility. And in that there's the wheel of emotions. And so happy, sad, glad, mad, and angry are just the core center of it. But then that expands and that expands yet again. And so can we really look at our emotional vocabulary and increase it so that we can really more accurately define what are we feeling at this moment?
0: yeah yeah thank you for sharing uh the story as well and yeah fine is not a feeling it 's sort of a neutral state, and as you said it's numb but it's uh, it's neither it's neither thumbs up or thumb down which you talk about in the book as well and Are you having a thumbs up yeah. day or a thumbs down day and you know how much is it as well uh but yeah, yeah uh moving on step four, you talk about plug in and the art of tapping your potential as well. One of the tips you give is give the energy you want to receive as well, so you know. Can you talk about a little bit about plugging in and, and tapping into our potential?
1: Yeah. So for me, what's really critical about this is that again, those those service experiences, those, those micro interactions that we have with people. You know, there there are times where in in across the street there's a grocery store and it has a self-checkout lane. And and Michael, oftentimes I would rather go to the self-checkout then I would go to one of the employees that's working there because they clearly are not passionate about what they're doing. They clearly aren't giving their best ideas at work either. The body's showing up, but that's about it. And so, you know, what I'm really pushing people to do here in plugging in is to really have deeper connections with people and give the energy that you want to receive back. So, you know, if you're rude to somebody, guess what the behavior is you expect to get back? They're likely going to be rude right back to you. But if you go in there with full energy and you go in there with enthusiasm and optimism, that's the energy that you're going to get back again. You know, when I think about my spirituality, Michael, uh, (laughs) I often think about it like that Carrie Underwood song where, you know, he's wearing a little bit too much bathroom polo, uh, the cologne uh, polo. And so I want my energy to to linger in the room even after I'm gone. I want people to remember the interaction that they had with me and and think positively about that. So that's what I say. Give the energy you want.
0: Absolutely, absolutely
1: In the book one of the
0: notes You talk about a character named Osho Who's one of my favourite spiritual teachers as well And he talks about the uh, deck of cards With the, the tarot And you talk about What I notice tells me something about myself But also one of the, the, the notes I wrote down Was uh, you've come to understand That we all have our own fantasy movie About you know, our lives What we think is true or false What we think we know, love or hate And it's this, this uh, fantasy movie that we have But also in any movie you can change the direction and you can be the director of that particular movie as well. Can you expand on that? What you spoke about with sort of how we interpret the world can be malleable and we can change that as well. we can bring more energy, bring less energy. We are really, the conductors and the director of our lives in terms of the energy that we show up and what we want out of life as well. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure. I, I mean, as I look at the Zen card of projection and What it's talking about for me is that we do go to the movie theater and we look at the screen and we think that's where the movie is. But that is not where the movie is. Scientifically, if you will, the projectors at the back of the room, we're really only seeing a reflection on the screen. And so when we're going through life and we somebody and we just love them, it's like, oh, they're the coolest person. I really like that about them. It's probably something about ourselves that we like as well. And at the same point in time, if we see something in somebody else that we don't like, that's probably a projection as well. And, and so as a part of the book and, and as a part of my life, I, I've invested in you know life coaches. And if I'm going to be an executive coach, then I better have a coach myself. And so uh, at one point in time, I was having a bit of a critical issue and uh, a crisis, if you will. And I needed to speak with my life coach. And I said, you know, if this person's a jerk and they're a complete idiot and they're just really rude and they're terrible, And they said to me, well, where were you a jerk? Where were you terrible? I'm like, I'm not. I'm a really nice person. You ask any one of my friends, he'll tell you how nice I am. And then I stopped and I thought about an interaction I'd had in my pharmacy And uh, they had converted from a, a card for your loyalty points to an application on your phone. Now, I'm not a Luddite, but I'm not very technically gifted at the same point in time either. And so I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what my password is. And I was a complete jerk to the pharmacist that was just trying to help me out. And so I was projecting onto this friend that they were being a jerk. What I was really seeing was myself when I was a jerk to the pharmacist across the street. And so we can choose those things as well. As Susan David shares with us in emotional agility, you can choose your own emotion at any time. You can choose to be happy, sad, glad, or mad, or angry. And so when we look at projection, oftentimes it's really just a reflection of ourselves.
0: Yeah, and it's a good segue into one of the chapters you talk about celebrate mistakes and the art of, you know, uh, the definition of a miss take it's a chance for a second take and you know you can go back to that pharmacist and apologize and say sorry let's (laughs) let's take this again i apologize it wasn't you it was me can you talk about celebrating mistakes and um yeah
1: again michael it kind of goes back to the childhood right you know when i think about you know how many times in my business career i've had to terminate an employee And what I know for sure when I've terminated an employee is that I've given them every opportunity to develop. You know, we put together performance improvement plans and we've had regular meetings and they've had every opportunity to correct their behavior and the results that they achieve in work. And, you know, it never seems to fail to me, though, after I have terminated that individual two weeks later, you know, employees will come up to me and say, thank goodness, you know, like they have been just, you know, dead wood on our team. They've not been doing anything on our team for a really long time. And I'm glad you finally figured it out. You know, you might even get a customer that calls you and says, wow, you know, I can't believe they're finally gone. They were really challenging. They were difficult to deal with. And so I always knew that people hid their mistakes. We learn that at a very young age. If you think about, you know, if you ever broke your mom's favorite vase, you know, you either blame the dog or you blame the sibling. It wasn't me, it wasn't me. And so we hide mistakes. And what I challenge people to do is to celebrate mistakes. I take a look at my smartphone. I don't know what you're on, Michael, but I'm on an iPhone. People say to me, oh, you're on an iPhone. I'm like, no, yeah, no, I'm not. Apple only created one iPhone. I'm on an iPhone 11 and I believe they're on an iPhone 13 right now. Could you imagine what our world would look like right now if Apple never released any iPhone until they were at the stage that we are with iPhone 13? And so what I challenge people to do is to take the word mistake and hyphenate it. Miss hyphen take. And then learn from Einstein. Einstein shares the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Don't expect a different result. Try a different take? And as you said, you know what's take number one? What's take number two? What's your third iteration? Your fourth iteration? How are you constantly adding value to these ideas to make it better and better and better? For me as a leader, that's my mantra every morning. What's one thing I'm going to do to make things better around here? And at the end of each day, when I put my head on the pillow, that's my metric to see whether I was successful or not. What did I do today that made things better in and around here? So celebrate miss hyphen takes. Now, I'm not talking about CLMs, which stands for a career limiting move. (laughs) As a leader, I don't let my people make mistakes that are so bad they're going to get fired instantly for it but I want them to try new things. I want them to try different things. Michael, if you keep doing what you've always done, you will get what you've always got. Plot that on a graph. What would that look like? It would be a flat line. If I took you to your hospital and you had a flat line, what would they tell you? You're dead. And so what I want people to do is to find new and better ways, different ways of doing what they've always done that will break them through to extraordinary results.
0: Yeah, well said, and thank you for sharing. And what it does with hyphenating mistakes, it takes the pressure and stress of people to not make mistakes, but to learn from those as well and understand they're a part of life as well. This is going to segue into the next chapter, Chapter 8, pa- Practice, Positivity. Pause Activity, the art of taking a break. Tell me about the story of introducing Joe Biden on stage, and the issues that you had through there. So, great story that you put into the book. Yeah, so can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure, it sort of builds off as well, doesn't it? Now, when I think about it, so um, my current uh, coach actually considers himself a guide, and um, what we talk about is what is my core? Who is the center of me? And so, I have my personal life mission statement. And you know I'm a grateful champion of health and balance and body, mind, and spirit. And I live my life with respect. That's my core. That's who I am. That's what I'm all about. But then I have my drunken monkey mind. And then I have my knowledge mind. My drunken monkey mind is my ego. And it's, it's challenging me that I can't do it. It's telling me there's no way it'll ever happen. Um, you know, all that self dealt that's in my mind. But my knowledge mind, what I really work with is, what do I know? What have been my experiences? What have I done in the past? And so the, the, uh, at that point in time, he was vice, uh, previous Vice President Joe Biden, currently the President of the United States of America right now. And we had done an event with him in Vancouver, Canada on the West Coast. And this was now Toronto. This is the big center. This is the the, the biggest center in Canada. And so we had a huge technical setup. And normally, backstage, things are pretty calm because you know the production team, they know what they're doing, everything's always really good. Now, Vice President Joe Biden is going to be in the House, and so we're pretty excited about that. There's no question about it. But when we went to begin the show, now, you know, think about this as sort of, it's um, a combination of your favorite university professor and your favorite rock star. <laughs> and so, you know, when people come into the hall, it, it's it's dimly lit, but there's lights flashing all over the place. There's music playing. There's lots of energy that's going on. And backstage, as I said, normally it's pretty zen. It's pretty calm because we're trying to calm the speakers before they go on stage. But there was a buzz of activity. It was all kinds of things going on. I'm like something's not quite right. And so I went over to the team and I'm like, what's happening? And they're like, well, we ran the opening video. It's what really lets people know the show is about to begin, Michael. So people take their seats and get ready. And it crashed. And they rolled the opening video a second time and it crashed again. And they're like, okay, well, throw to Bill's audio introduction. So they throw to my audio introduction and it crashes. And I'm looking at them and they're looking at me. Their eyes are as big as saucers. And I'm like, what are you gonna do? And they're like, go out there. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, go out there, start the show. And I'm like, is it gonna work? Like, is my PowerPoint, gonna, is anything gonna work? They're like, we don't know, just get out there and open the show. <laughs> so I run out on stage and I introduce myself with my Billy Williams from Fort William, Ontario story. It gets a laugh. And then I ask the audience, you know, are you excited about Vice President Joe Biden being here today? And like the applause is huge and I'm like, yes. And so I said to them, imagine, Imagine the excitement backstage when we run the opening video and it crashes and we roll it again and it crashes and we roll the audio introduction and it crashes. Imagine how excited they were backstage. So what did I do, Michael? I really just calmed my monkey mind. I calmed that drunken monkey mind. And I thought about how many times have I opened this event? I think I'm on close to 30 events now, which means I have introduced, you know, like over hundred different speakers that have been at each of those events. And so I knew in my knowledge mind that I could get through this. I didn't need the opening video. It makes an impact to the show. I didn't need the audio introduction. It too makes a difference, but I knew that I could handle it. So I just calmed everything down and I practiced what I call pause activity. Calm the drunken monkey, go with what you know.
0: And uh, from that leading with openness and trust and honesty and you going on stage and telling people that, yeah, you, you, it is what it is. You yes, had a crush. Yeah. And, and owning it as well. And that takes away a lot of the fear of that as well.
1: Yeah. Cause they, they probably could have complained about it at the end of the event. You know, it was like, what was with that bumpy technical introduction kind of thing. But just, you know, the fact that I got out of it, sort of almost like any public relations incident, right. You know, get out in front of the story because otherwise people are going to make up all kinds of smack. Just get out in front of the story, tell the truth, be transparent, be honest, everything will be
0: Yeah, it's a great story and a great analogy for life, and knocking it on the head can be save you a lot of uh, hassles down the road as well. Some of the other last uh, steps and tips you give in the book, like Step 10, uh, life, uh, Life-Giving, The Art of hidden law of reciprocity. I like the little story you talk about Robert Cialdini and giving a little bit of candy after a dinner with a receipt gives a higher tip. That's a cool story through there. I'm not sure if you want to add on to anything about the law of reciprocity.
1: No, I mean, it's just, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, people do keep track, right? You know, people are keeping a running score and I challenge people don't keep track. But from that business perspective, yes, what Dr. Robert Cialdini discovered was that when a server in a restaurant would give a, a, a bill without anything, their tip would be, you know, basic. Um, what he discovered is that if they gave a couple of pieces of candy, uh, mints, hopefully wrapped, not uh, exposed mints, because there's a disgusting part in the book as well that talks about those types of mints at the reception desk. Um, but uh, but if, if it's a candy that they give that's wrapped, that the tip would dramatically go up. Now, if you really wanted to multiply that. Go and, if you will, this is a bit manipulative though, Michael, is when servers bring the bill without the candies and then they come back later and apologize and give you the candies, the the um, gratuity, if you will, the, the tip goes up even higher. And so, you know, when I'm talking about live giving, it's really about that law of reciprocity. Give the things that you want to give, but don't keep score you know i think about those times when we used to you know do modeling clay classes with little kids in school and, and you'd you know give your mom you know something that you thought was supposed to be like a a dish uh, it turned out to either be an ashtray or or maybe it's something that, you know, people collected, you know, spare change in, if you will. But there's something amazing about being an adult and, um, you know, maybe helping your mom in some way, shape or form. You go through one of her drawers and you discover that she still kept that gift that you gave her. So in some cases, the gift is in the receiving For me more often than not the gift is in the giving and especially when you give the right gift and somebody really appreciates the attention to detail that you use to buy them that perfect gift just for them so so live giving don't keep score don't expect anything in return uh, and, and see just how much happier.
0: you are. Yeah, yeah, well said, and it's totally true. And just the last thing before we cap off the podcast, you talk about in Chapter one, uh, 12, cross the river, the art of being true to your spirit energy as well. And I like how you said about, remember that your body is on loan, as are our minds, but our spirit carries on. Talk about sort of keeping your river clean and, and purifying um, others as well and holding space. You know, we don't want to carry around someone else's burdens, so retain our power.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, that one begins with the the famous uh, legend of uh, two monks which have an oath to each other that they would never touch a member of the opposite sex. And they were on a a trek up to a monastery up in the mountains. And as a part of that trek, they came to a very turbulent river. And there was a little old woman that was there, and she was not able to navigate her way across that river, but she needed to get across. And so she had the courage to be vulnerable and ask the elder monk, you know, would you help me get across the river? And so he picks her up, puts her on his shoulders and carries her across the river and puts her down on the other side. Now, you know, their journey continues. So one minute later, two minutes later, three minutes later, they're walking. One hour later, two hours later, three hours later, they're still walking, hiking up to the monastery in the mountains. And the younger monk turns to the older monk and he says, I cannot believe you betrayed me. We had an oath to each other that we would never touch a member of the opposite sex. And you pick that woman up. You touched that woman. And the elder monk turned to the younger monk and he says, I picked her up and I put her down on the other side of the river. You've been carrying her for three hours. So do not carry somebody else's burden. Maintain and and control your own power, if you will. The other thing that you were talking about there is the confluence, the term is called confluence. And the original definition of that word was the meeting of two rivers of equal size. Now, I grew up in a place called Tecumploops, British Columbia. That's its indigenous name. It's said Kamloops, British Columbia now. And we had a terrible situation there whereby we had residential schools in Canada that we're quite ashamed of now, as most Canadians have discovered. And in Kamloops, there was a discovery of 215 bodies of children that went to this residential school in unmarked graves. So we don't even know what took their life, but we absolutely believe, I believe, that it was something terrible. They, they should not have died at that age. We, we treated them very, very poorly. And so confluence is the meeting of two rivers of equal size. And so if you think about one river being pure like those young children and the other river being completely toxic and polluted, like the harm that was done to them, when those two rivers come together, they will forever be changed. The pure river will to some degree cleanse the polluted toxic river, but the toxic river will forever impact and affect the pure river. And so I really challenge people to think about what's the energy that you're leaving in that room. Once you've had that interaction with somebody else, are you leaving them in a better place or are you taking them to a deeper, darker place? That's not good. So really think about how pure is your river? Can you, you know, control and maintain your own power and not carry somebody else's burden? But at the same point in time, make sure that you're giving, you know, the truth of who you are. And and so for me, if you will, in the end, Michael, so long as I'm in my truth, it's none of my business what anyone else thinks of me. I know that that's my truth. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed of it. It was my past, and I may not feel good about some of the um, things that I've done in my life. But, you know, regret for the things that I've done will be tempered by time. Regret for the things that I've never done, it's inconsolable. I've forgotten who I quoted there, but that is a quote. Yeah, well
0: said and and spot on. So, yeah, thank you for sharing these stories and thank you for writing the book as well. Uh, To the people listening out there, where can they find the book, buy the book and follow you socially as well?
1: absolutely i would just encourage them to go to my website that's probably the easiest michael so it's billgwilliams.com. bill billg com, like grant Williams, dot com. they will be able to find the book there um, through uh, amazon or through barnes and noble uh, they'll also be able to follow me on all of the social media that i'm there linkedin twitter facebook instagram looking forward to, uh, connecting with your listeners in a deep perfect,
0: way. yeah. And for anyone listening, please go out there, buy the book, follow Bill, and and check it out as well. So, Bill, thank you for being a guest on the Best Book Bits podcast, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks very much, mm-hmm.
1: Michael. My pleasure. Thank you. Cheers.
0: Oh,